Welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. We are coming to you live from the Morton studio, and we're going to be talking about Goss's wilt in corn. Now, Goss's wilt is a bacterial disease, so how, how you handle that is a lot different than how you handle fungal diseases in corn. But you know what? Even if you don't raise corn, there's still a lot of sim- there are still a lot of similarities between this in corn, and many of the bacterial diseases that you may be getting in the crops that you raise. So we'll talk about that throughout the show today. If you've got any questions for us, you can call us here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Well, we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a minute, but before we do, let's uh, jump to the phone lines. All right, let's head over to Minnesota. I got our friend Tony on right now. Tony, how are you doing today? Oh, doing well. How are you guys? Good. You're wasting no time. You're diving in right here, first minute. I love it. Hey, you bet. I got a question on humic acid. Okay. And if you're using that as a stabilizer for nitrogen, and there's many different humic acids available to purchase, how do you determine the rate of humic acid to use as a nitrogen stabilizer? Well, first of all, Tony, let me just say that humic acid is not proven nor labeled as a stabilizer for nitrogen. So nobody's going to back that up, or at least if they do, um, they're going to be going off-label on their product. So we, because of that, we can't really tell you, oh, yeah, you just simply follow this formula, and there you go. Uh, go okay. ahead, Darren. The problem with humic, too, and as you well know, Tony, that there just aren't any standards on how do you tell exactly how much humic is in each product. And I loved the example. Uh, I was talking to an industry expert on this, and he said, well, I changed the oil on my tractor. I sent that in for somebody to do a humic test, and they test by color. And guess what? It was black, and it came back 12% humic. <laughs> so, you know, when we've got those kind of things going on in the industry, uh, that's tough, and it gives everything a bad name. Now, yeah. I would say this. Yeah. Uh, can humic help? Yes. Chemically, it can definitely help. Uh, it's not necessarily labeled as a nitrogen stabilizer, but it, it's certainly going to help protect that nitrogen for some amount of time. I don't know how long, so I'm not, I'm not going to make a huge recommendation on, oh, yeah, that's all you ever need to use. But but you know what? If you're using a humic, will you get some stabilization properties out of it? Sure. It's and, kinda it's kinda like ammonium thiosulfate. You know, we've we've talked about that for probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years, that ammonium thiosulfate can help stabilize nitrogen, but that also is not labeled. There isn't a set standard for, oh, hey, for every gallon you use this many ounces of ATS or anything like that. So there there get to be some of these things talked about in agriculture, just like this stabilization with humic. Darren just said, yes, that can can help. Well, when Darren says something like that, then you would assume, oh, well, there's got to be something labeled. But unfortunately, there isn't. So we'd like to see more research done on that by some of the universities. And and maybe someday there will be some kind of standard. But right now, yeah, we just don't have a, a great answer for you. Darren, I mean, Les, Darren, do you have anything, what, what you would say? 
No, you yeah. just have to go by the product that you're using and what, what they would recommend. I guess that's the best thing that a person could do. And you could compare a couple of them and you could compare them to some stabilized nitrogen well, of some sort. Y- you can, but I mean, for us as farmers, how do we measure that? And I think that's where Tony's getting at. You know, it's one thing if you're going to compare two different hybrids. Okay, well, well, anybody can do that. That's not that difficult. But you start comparing stabilizers. And, oh, we're going to take it to yield in the end. That's really about all you've got. Other than that, I mean, what are you going to do? Look for greenness? Are you going to do plant tissue analysis maybe? I mean, it's it's harder when you start talking stabilizers because there are other factors that enter in here. If we get rainfall at the right time, you don't need a stabilizer at all. If you don't get excess excessive rains for leaching, you don't need a stabilizer. You, you know where I'm going with this. So we're always taking our chances out there on the farm. We would just tell you... When you're putting a humic product with it, yes, you probably will get some stabilization. You know, as to how much exactly, we we just don't really know, unfortunately. Okay. Well, that was my question for the day. <laughs> All right. Try to stump us again uh, another day, Tony. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a good, that was a good one. All right. Thanks. Thanks, guys. You bet. Yeah, most of the time when we get uh, when we get questions in here, and, and if you listen to the show on a regular basis, you will hear us come right away with answers, and we have a lot of experience with different things, so so we can tell you. But it's it's just unfortunate with this humic deal. That one that one's tricky. Yep, it sure is. All right, I had another question. This is from Doug in South Dakota. He said, "I'm planting extend beans, planning to uh, go no-till into bean stubble." I've got a 15-inch planter with row cleaners, disc openers, and so forth. I'm going to spray Sonic with dicamba for my burn down right afterwards. Yep. Uh, Have you done this? And if so, what's a good rate for dicamba is my first question. Okay. So the labeled rate is what we are typically going to have to tell you, and that's going to be, depending on the dicamba that you're using, could be like, oh, wait, did he say a product? Did he say Extendamax? Okay. Yeah. So... Extend a max would be 22 ounces, and let's see. Um, Genia 12.8. Yes, Genia 12.8, thank you. So, okay, so then, anyway, that's going to be the labeled rate. And I'll, I'll tell you this. When it's cold, you want to make sure you are using that, that high rate. Sometimes you can get by with a half rate or three quarters rate when the weather's warm and the weeds are small, when you don't have that many weeds. So that's, I'm sure, why you're asking this question. Yes, there are people that have gotten by with lower rates, but you got to have everything right. And keep in mind, then, of course, that's off label because you're using a lower rate. But it could potentially work. All right. His other question is, um, is there a good liquid nutrient mix I could add with the sprayer? For example, sulfur, boron, micronutrients at this time. Uh, to to try and feed that crop. Well, if you're going to spray it with dicamba, you're no. adding a little bit of risk there, and I don't know how many it's of those gonna things be are going to be on that label. Yep, yep. So no, you can't do it. Let's just put it that way. We'll make it simple for you. So we're big believers in liquid um, with the planter. We're big believers in liquid foliar, but you start spraying liquid fertilizer. Um, across as a broadcast, you just have to be a little more careful because if you're putting dicamba in there, most, most of those products aren't going to be labeled. But yeah, a lot of times we'll go boron or copper or something like that. Just depends on your soil test. Send us your soil test. We can look at it and maybe give you a little better advice. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. 
the Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. With stronger bean prices ahead, don't let white mold reduce your yield and profits again this year. Contans WG reduces sclerotia in your fields, eliminating white mold at the source. White mold was a major problem in 2019, costing soybean farmers valuable yield potential. As you rotate back into those white mold infected areas this spring, protect yourself by applying Contans. Clean your soils and return lost yield potential to every soybean you plant with Contans WG. AgroLiquid is precision crop nutrition. That means being committed to product performance, to research and field testing, and to superior agronomics. Most of all, AgroLiquid is committed to delivering precisely the right nutrition in the right way, including seed-safe planter plus side dress applications and foliar applications with low burn risk. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk about Goss's wilt in corn on this show, and we're also going to take your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Start off at Iowa State. We've got Allison Robertson with us right now. Allison, good talking to you. Hi, I'm good to speak to you too. Thanks uh, for having me. All right, so the big question is, is this going to be a Goss's wilt year in the state of Iowa or are conditions uh, leading you to believe, ah, I'm not going to be as concerned about it as I would other years? Um, I would say that if you're, it depends on the hybrid that you're growing. So um, if you're growing a hybrid that's susceptible to Goss's wilt, then I can almost guarantee that you will get Goss's wilt. well okay and and here's the here's where this is coming from a little bit is we get a lot of farmers that were in the path of the derecho that went through that are really worried oh man i had corn laying down and i'm going to put corn back in some of those fields it it was just a mess out there what i guess what's been uh uh, the questions that you've been getting out of that area well um yeah lots of questions about what diseases are going to be a problem um, in the coming year, and really that depends what diseases were in the corn residue in the first place, right? Um, and leading up to the derecho, we'd had a very, very dry season, and so we actually didn't have a lot of disease. So that's one good thing. There's probably not a lot of inoculum surviving in that corn residue. Now, farmers have to remember, right, that yes, corn residue is a primary source of inoculum, but that inoculum also comes from other things. So it can blow in, you know, from the south, from a storm in Nebraska, um, you know, up from Missouri if we're thinking about 
northern corn leaf blight or something like that. So we have outside sources of inoculum as well as that infield inoculum. And then some of these pathogens, like Goss's wilt, will survive on weeds that we have around the field and may not necessarily cause symptoms on those weeds. And so then we don't know that we have Goss's wilt, the Goss's wilt bacterium in that field. Okay. So lots of things to think about. <laughs> yes, yes, there sure are. Well, okay, you started off by talking about hybrid tolerance, and, and I just wanted to get your yes. take on this because we, we look at a lot of corn hybrids, and I get to spend a lot of time yeah. with corn breeders in the summer. And one of the things that I see now is what they used to call very good gosses is now kind of just average in their lineup. It, it appears to me we're yeah. getting a lot better tolerance. What What do you see? Oh yes, I would. I agree completely that there's a lot more, a lot better tolerance out there in that hybrids, especially um, the you know um, 105 day upwards. So for those guys further north, yeah, it can be it, you know it can be a little harder to find um, good tolerance in those earlier maturing hybrids. So you know they, they, it's still getting bred into those hybrids, but. Further south, you, I think you're a little bit safer. Okay, so let's say that a farmer had a Goss's problem in past years. Say in the la- within the last couple of years, yes. he's had more Goss than yes. he's seen before. And, and we've had a number of yes. emails that have come in this winter like that. What are the strategies that you would advise that farmer if he said, okay, I went to soybeans last year, but I'm going to go back to corn. What can I do to add some safety out there? I would say to him that the, the best thing he, he can do is to put the most tolerant hybrid out on that field. Um, so that would, that's where I would start. And, um, you know, and yeah, and then other than that, I mean, there's nothing you can spray for Goss's wilt. Um, the other thing that I would advise is just, you know, make sure your, your fertilization is, is, is correct. So make sure you've got all your nutrient management sorted out. Um, Plant at the right, you know, plant at what's um, the right planting population for that hybrid. Do everything you can um, to ensure that that crop is as healthy as as possible. Because just like us, a healthier crop is going to be better able to withstand, you know, that pathogen coming along. So, yeah, but for me, the cornerstone when it comes to Goss's wilt is hybrid. Hybrid, 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 and get as tolerant as you can. In right. that case, best hybrid, minimize stress. How about this? You mentioned good fertility management, and I look at a lot of the yeah. products that are getting marketed as, "Hey, this will help on Goss's wilt." And I agree with you. I haven't seen anything that's consistently been uh, a game changer yeah. as far as a foliar spray, but many of them are based on copper. Have you noticed a difference with soil copper levels at all? If you've got high levels mm-hmm. of copper in the soil, has that helped? Yeah, I, I. No, I have not seen any research in that area, and I would be skeptical, but I'm paid to be skeptical, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yep, yep, I get that. you got to yeah. prove it out in the field before you can recommend it. Okay, so yes. you get called out to, to fields, and a lot of times farmers think they have gosses, but you find out, nope, this isn't gosses. What is it commonly uh, mistaken for? I would say that the most it's most commonly mistaken for northern corn leaf blight has the same type of, of lesion as northern corn leaf blight, that large elliptical c- cigar shape. And um, the other thing that it can get um, 
mistaken for is uh, heat stress scorch on those leaves. So, um, you know, in droughted situations, um, it can be really hard to diagnose that gosses wilt just because those leaves are so dry and you get that 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 burning back from that leaf tip and stuff. So those are the two main ones that I would um, pull out. Um, maybe more in the eastern corn belt, um, Diplodia leaf streak. Um, we don't see a whole lot of that here in Iowa. But the one thing that I would look for in Goss's wilt is it usually comes in in the top of the canopies, usually starts from the tips of the leaves, or if you've had hail damage, you'll see the Goss's wilt lesion starting around that hail damage. So those are kind of the things that I look for when I'm out in the field. Um, yeah. Okay, well, that's a good start. Now, yeah. other diseases that you're seeing. So Goss's, if we pick the right hybrid, if we minimize stress, we're doing everything we can. Are there some other diseases out there that you're saying, you know what, here's some that are really starting to be a big problem for farmers in the area that we also need to keep on the lookout for? Yeah, I mean, I would, so um, it, there's a big concern around tar spot, right? So, and we don't really have any good tolerance in there for tar, for tar spot. So um, tar spot's probably top of the agenda. Maybe not so much, you know, as we go west, um, maybe in eastern Iowa. And then, um, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of Pfizerderma. I mean, I just like either. I think that we're just building up inoculum because that inoculum can survive so long in the field. But I also think that some of the hybrids are maybe more susceptible than they have been in the past. So yeah, I just I see a lot of Pfizerderma. Are you seeing it at and the nodes? Or you, I'm concerned. Are you seeing Pfizerderma oh, at the nodes or up on the kind of on leaves? Depends on the hybrid. So you'll get hybrids that'll get it on the nodes and you'll get hybrids that'll get it on the leaves. You don't usually get hybrids that get both. Okay. I've been out so on some green snap. In my experience. Been out on some yes. green snap issues and I've I've seen Physoderma at nodes where we just had plants snap right off. But I, I have been noticing yeah. more of the spots on the leaves, up yes. the midrib, those types yes. of things. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, in the past People have not believed that there's much of a yield issue with that toss, with the um, Pfizerderma on the leaves. Um, but I don't know, you know, some of those hybrids that um, get nailed with Pfizerderma on the, on the leaves, they really get nailed. And I can't believe that there's not a yield you know, some yield impact there. Yeah, so, I, I totally agree, um, Allison. I yeah. think it gets back to what you said. If you've got more stress on that plant, it, it's not a good yeah. thing. So we want to do what we can. And I, yeah. as far as the hybrids go, just talking with corn breeders, I know they're working on it, and I know they're starting yeah. to feel like they've got some hybrids that are a little better than others. But, yeah, they aren't where they are yeah. with Goss's wilt tolerance just yet. Yes, I agree with you. Yep, yep. All right, we're talking with Allison Robertson here with Iowa State and uh, hit a little goss as well, a little physoderma, a little tar spot. Allison, you got a lot to work on this summer. Thanks for joining us and hope to talk to you again soon. Yes, thank you for having me and good luck to everyone with spring planting. You bet, yeah, it's just right around the corner here. We're talking gosses wilt in corn. We'll get right back to that discussion after this.
heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. <sighs> Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low use rate Authority Supreme herbicide from FMC combines group 14 and group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Step it up this season. Do more than just keep your soybean fields clean with Authority Supreme or Authority Edge herbicide from FMC. Walk those clean fields with pride and enter for your chance to win a $500 Cabela's gift card. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at stepitupwithfmc.com. Always read and follow label directions for use. Void or prohibited. Must be a legal U.S. resident and age of majority in your state to enter. See official rules for terms and conditions. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. You're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want. But when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds, you also need flexibility. Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans. Elite Genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at extendflexsoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about Goss's wilt in corn, and you may have thought this is a women in agriculture show. We we just had Allison Robertson on, and uh, and she was fantastic from Iowa State. We've got Tamara Jackson Zims on right now, who's also one of our favorites over at University of Nebraska. Uh, Tamara, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I, I don't know. Are all the best uh <laughs> extension pathologist women across the country? I don't know. It seems like the ones that we talk to are. 
Well, I've got some wonderful colleagues, both male and female. Thanks for putting me in that group. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we talk about goss as well, I don't know. It used to be a problem for, for us farming in South Dakota. We're like, oh, man, they've got it down in Nebraska. We don't have it up here yet. But uh, that we should never have opened our mouths because we've got goss as well <laughs> everywhere up here now, too. And even the guys further north of us up in North Dakota have got it. Why is this thing spreading? Why, why does it move around like that? You know, this is tricky because these bacteria, they're, they're small and they overwinter in the infested debris, for one thing. So wherever you've had it before, you're going to likely see it again when you have the right conditions or a hailstorm. And it's easy for that debris to move around. And so that's probably the primary way that we're moving it. Uh, there is a chance it can be seed-borne, but that is such a low, low uh, percentage that we don't consider that to be important. All right. Since you mentioned the debris, I've gotten a few questions from farmers who are feeding livestock. And they said, bailed up corn stalks, didn't realize that, that uh, Goss's wilt was going to be in that, and I fed it to my cattle. They've been grazing out in different fields. Is that a problem? Are we going to spread it through the animals? Well, the reality is we don't know for sure. I haven't seen any research where someone has looked at the at the mortality of the bacteria through the gut of the animal. And I have spent some time talking to our own animal scientists here at UNL, and they, um, they said there just wasn't a real good way for us to do that. And so I think it would be a worthy study, but that's something to keep in mind when we are bailing up stalks and moving those. And so if you haven't had you know, diseases, you might consider what you might be bringing in and where those are sourced and uh, what potential things might be coming in with it. All right. With uh, Goss's wilt, so we see it in the upper portions of the corn plant. Does that move all through the plant systemically? And if we get rid of the uh, above ground residue, do we still have it in the lower stalk and down into the root? Well, unfortunately, that can be the case. And so, you know, Goss's wilt, the bacteria causing it, can infect a, a few different ways and cause disease symptoms, I guess I should say, in a few different ways. The most common way, the way most of us see it, is a leaf blight or a leaf uh, phase of the disease. And that's usually after tasseling. You'll see that, like you said, often in the upper leaves that are getting beat up by the, by the wind or uh, heavy rainfall. And so that's where we have a lot of initial infections. But in some areas, we actually see a systemic wilt. And often that's uh, in younger plants that are maybe before V6 even. And sometimes those plants get beat up with an early hail event or a high wind event or some sandblasting. And the bacteria can infect. And in those plants, you know, they're really small and all the nodes are packed really tightly together and if you get infection anywhere along there the whole plant becomes infected and it can kill those plants prematurely and so the mortality rate is much higher in those areas where you see systemic gosses wilt historically you know we've seen more of that out in western nebraska the panhandle in northeast colorado and uh, western kansas we don't see it as often, and it seems that the resistance that uh, our breeders are talking about is separate uh, from that systemic wilt. That systemic wilt's hard to hard to uh, duplicate in the field, and so it's hard to 
evaluate material for that too. And so thankfully we don't see it as often, but when you do, it can be a big deal. Yeah, I know the breeders are inoculating in their trials to try to study this on new hybrids that are coming out. But are you saying the systemic wilt version of it, they're, they're not necessarily inoculating for right now, so they aren't getting good tests on that? I think people are trying to do it. It's less consistent. You know, when we evaluate hybrids for the, for the blight phase, you know, that you and I see more often, that's pretty easy. Um they can beat the leaves up and spray the bacteria on and get pretty good disease to evaluate material. But systemic wilt's harder. We've tried a lot of ways too, injecting it in the plants and uh, doing some weird stuff trying to make this work. And I think it's a struggle for all of us. Yeah, it's it's a challenge, and I know talking to growers across Nebraska, they recognize that that there's that Goss's wilt is not just Goss's wilt, and it's not always the same, and and one hybrid may respond differently for a farmer sixty miles away than it does in a different spot. Yeah. Uh, so for farmers, we we were talking with Allison Robertson just about how. Many times a farmer will misidentify and think he's got gosses or think he has northern corn leaf blight and it's actually gosses. If a farmer is going to send in a sample, how do you go about doing that? Are there? Do you want a whole plant? Do you want certain leaves? How do you like those samples to come in if you're really going to make a good diagnosis? Good question. So in general, when we recommend people collect samples to send in for any kind of uh, problem, since we can't always be sure whether it's disease-related or not, we'd, we'd rather get whole plants if we can. And that that creates a bit of a challenge with a big old corn plant. Uh, often the best way to do that is to take those plants and fold them up and put them in a plastic bag, uh, even a, a garbage bag tied up, and, and ship that to us. If we knew it was just on the leaves, that's pretty easy to handle. We can fold those up and put them in a regular gallon Ziploc bag. But plastic is the key. We want to treat these like we would our produce from the grocery store to keep them fresh before the, you know, before it goes through shipping and handling and has to sit in the diagnostic clinic over the weekend sometimes. And we want to keep them as fresh as possible. And so, uh, the problem is sometimes we have root diseases or lower stalk diseases that can make uh, the upper leaves look like they've got something different. And that's why we want whole plants if we can. Great tips. Yeah, I'm just writing that down for myself for my own use. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it happens. I mean, stuff. It, you know something's going to pop up somewhere, and hopefully it's just a few plants in one field, not a whole field that you lose. But like you mentioned with that systemic wilt, that, that can be a bad deal, and it can happen in a hurry out there early in the season. So don't don't want to yeah. run into that because we know this about gosses. If we don't see it till really late in the year, the yield impact seems to be quite a bit less. Is there a point where you say, I'm not worried about it anymore after this, or is it just always a concern even if it comes up late? You know, I I think you're absolutely right. The later it comes in, the less we're concerned about it. But even even then, you know, I think it would have to come in after, gosh, after denting before I'd not be worried about it. And even then, any leaves that are uh, infected are going to fall to the ground and potentially provide bacteria for next year or the following year for disease. And so I, in some ways, I think it's a problem either way and that we just can't let our guard down. We'll always have to pick those good resistant hybrids. 
Yep, it comes right back to hybrid selection, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it now rather than in the middle of the season for our radio listeners when they can still do something about it and be really fussy about which hybrids actually go in the ground here coming up in the next few weeks. Talking with Tamara Jackson-Zims with the University of Nebraska. Tamara, thank you so much. Really appreciate what you do and look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thanks a lot, and good luck to everybody. You bet. We're going to need it this year. I know there's some areas out there that are kind of dry. All right, Brian, uh, Goss as well. This is one of the things you talk about a lot. If you have to switch hybrids, make sure you ask the questions. Exactly. And there are, unfortunately, going to be hybrid switches at the last minute. Hopefully not for you, but could be for you. You go to pick up your seed or your seed gets delivered and you go, hey, wait a second. Where's this variety that I ordered? And they go, yeah, sorry. That one didn't make germ or whatever. And you have to switch. Keep Goss's wilt in mind because the best way by far to stop it is to pick the right hybrid. All right, right after this, we are going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag. Stay tuned. Introducing Kyber Soybean Herbicide from Corteva AgriScience, the newest premium Group 15 pre-emergent solution. Kyber delivers three effective modes of action for long-lasting residual activity, meaning your fields won't just be clean, they'll be Kyber clean. And what is Kyber clean? Well, it's a little like... Nice fields! See the difference at kyberherbicide.com soy. That's K-Y-B-E-R herbicide.com soy. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmyourway. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker-treated nitrogen. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 
It takes a team to beat resistant weeds. Experts agree using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective, contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC is a perfect teammate, having a synergistic effect with HPBD inhibitors and enhances products in the PS2 group. Make Tough 5EC part of your winning team. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit FelchumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio. Today we've been talking about Goss's wilt in corn. Just to recap that, the big thing is pick the right variety. Beyond that, if you can rotate and stay away from corn for at least a year, that definitely helps. And on top of that, we would always tell you, try to do everything else you can to raise a fantastic crop, and your crop's going to be more tolerant to disease in general. So to begin with, you want to have great drainage. When you have great drainage, that means more air in the soil. So not only do you have much better root growth, but you will have better microbial life in that soil too. So when you read in farm magazines, they talk about healthy soils, living soils. Well, you have to have air in order for your soil to be healthy and to be living. Next thing is fertility. Don't just look at N, P, and K. Now, I'm not saying uh, those aren't important. They're the most important nutrients for sure. But you got to take a look at sulfur, calcium, magnesium, iron, boron, zinc, copper, manganese, molybdenum, uh, chloride. You know, there are a lot of other nutrients besides just N, P, and K. That's my point. And if you don't know what you should have in your soil, then take some soil tests and send them to us. We're more than happy to share that with you. We talk about it all the time here on the show. That is tremendously important if you want to take your yields to the next level and if you want better disease tolerance. And so I know if you listen to the show on a regular basis, you're probably tired of me saying this, but I relate health of that plant to health in human beings. Okay, It's the same type of thing. When you go to your doctor, what are they going to tell you? eat a balanced diet, they're probably going to tell you, take a multivitamin. Okay, what's a multivitamin doing? It's giving you micronutrients, just like you fertilizing with micronutrients for your crop. So make sure that your soil and your plants have those micronutrients, and that will make a difference. Darren asked uh, the question earlier in the show with one of our guests about copper in the soil. We absolutely will tell you, if you do not have adequate copper in the soil, you are more likely to get gosses wilt period. Okay. But I can't say that it's that much different with some of the other nutrients too. It's just copper is kind of known as the disease nutrient. And also the nice thing with copper is it's kind of like phosphorus and zinc in that it's not going anywhere in your soil. It's going to stay there for maybe a hundred years until your crop uses it. As long as you don't have soil erosion, it's not going to leach out. Is what I'm trying to say, like nitrate sulfate boron. Anyway, so do those things. Then make sure you have great weed and insect control. Okay. Because any any weeds you have out there, that's going to mean more stress in the plant. Any bugs that are feeding on that plant, whether we're talking feeding on the roots, feeding on the leaves, feeding on the tassel, anything, it's more stress and that plant isn't going to respond as well to, I mean, when Goss's wilt does show up when the plant's already under stress. So anything you could possibly do to help that crop 
do well all through the growing season, it's going to mean gosses will, I mean, it might still show up, but it's not going to hurt you as much. And it's the same thing for all the diseases. So those are just our general recommendations with gosses will. Unfortunately, there isn't a bacteria side that you can go out and just spray. You, you know, you see gosses will, you go spray it. That just doesn't exist today. So hopefully it will sometime in the future. But for now, variety selection, do everything else you can do to reduce stress. And that's pretty much the plan. All right, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. Oh, my goodness, Brian. We got so many questions in today. Okay, first one is a drainage one. This comes from Steve in North Central South Dakota. He said, I've been listening to you guys as much as I can for the last 15 years, soaking up as much as possible. My question is if NRCS would have the topographic maps for what I want to tile and say if there's a slough that I would have to run under, would I be able to run a solid PVC yes. pipe under the wetland and then Do- change back doesn't to have the to drain be- tile? Yes, but it doesn't have to be PVC. Go ahead. Yeah, change back to regular drain tile sure. uh, after that. Yeah, and so then- what, what we typically will do is we'll just pull solid line through that area, and then we, we go back to perforated. He said, I just want to try and plan ahead before I get the tiler out there because yep. I haven't heard anything back from NRCS. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yes. they, some, they get busy. They get busy at times, and sometimes they're a little slow and, and booked up. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. If you're using a solid pipe, uh, if you're not doing anything It's way wrong, cheaper. Yeah, you yeah. start running PVC. Now you got you to gotta, uh, bring a backhoe out. Hopefully you lay it right. It costs way more money. I mean, it's literally going to take you 10 minutes to probably run through that area with a solid tile line. It's no big deal if you've got that. All right. Uh, Thanks for the question. Really appreciate that, Steve. Uh, I got this one from Diego down in Argentina. He said, I've got a soybean field that suffered drought in R3 to R4. Then it rained, and I see some new pods coming out of the plants. Uh, just wondering which factor will determine if the pods will fill up. Uh, thanks, Diego, for the question. Yeah, we do see that a lot. Beans will still put on new pods until yep. about R5.5. Mm-hmm. So you caught it just in time. And a lot of times what we'll see is a cluster of pods at the top of the yep. plant. And that can add some significant yield. So, yep. yeah, good job. That's fantastic. I'm glad, I'm glad okay. you had that good fortune to catch the rain. Now you need nutrients to fill that out. So if you've got enough fertility that that plant can pull in to fill those pods and you've got some sunshine and enough growing season left, which I'm and sure the moisture. You do. Yep. Yeah. Now you got some moisture. You you may have it. So in our geography, we run into frost in the fall, and that's what can kill us. So a lot of times, and it's it's kind of funny. Well, we hear a lot of farmers in the fall say, "Boy, I wish we'd just get that killing frost so I could get started harvesting beans." And I'm going, "No, don't don't ever 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 wish for that. We want a late frost every year because then all those late ones that show up, we get to finish filling them out. And granted, they might not be huge, but anything is better than nothing. Even if it adds one bushel, that is more net income in your pocket." All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, Got this question in about enlist soybeans. A grower says here, can I start planting enlist soybeans sooner than one month when I use 2,4-D LV6 in the burndown? Ooh, you'd have to look at the label on your LV6. Um, so it depends on the rate. Uh, yeah. Um, so one, one to two. So a half a pint at one week, a pint 
at two weeks, and that's kind of the standard thing. What did he say, a rate? No. Okay, I didn't think he said a rate. Uh, anyway, so just look at the label of the product you are using. Now, will let's say you did it a day before. Will it hurt the beans? No. But it's not labeled, so we can't tell you to do that. Okay, thanks for the question. Got this from Marty in North Carolina. He said, do you think Valor XLT alone is sufficient for pre-emerge weed control in soybeans? I've nope. got a CEC of eight low organic matter soils, a couple of fields of severe palmer last year. If not, what would you add to Valor XLT to try to get that control up? All right, Marty. Well, first of all, this is kind of like, is it too windy to spray? The answer is always yes. Is it too cold to spray? The answer is always yes. Is this product going to be enough to take care of my severe Palmer problems? Well, you know that what the answer is before you even ask that. No, it's not. You're going to need a little bit well, more out there. Okay, but let's explain. What Valor XLT is, it's Valor and Classic. Classic is an ALS herbicide that is not going to do a thing for your Palmer pigweed because I'm almost positive your Palmer pigweed is resistant to ALS herbicides. So I'm not saying the classic in there's a waste of money, but if you told me, look, I have one weed, that's it on my farm, and it's Palmer pigweed, I would say the classic in there is a complete waste of money. So instead, what we talk about all the time is the Valor's great. Okay, we love the Valor. But you could use a higher rate of Valor than you're probably going to get in the Valor XLT anyway. That's number one. Number two, you would want to throw some Metribuzin out there. And granted, you can't use a lot with an 8CEC, but you can use a little bit. And then finally, we would suggest either try Fluralin if you're in uh, if you're tilling or Prowl if you're in no-till. That's the third mode of action we would recommend. And we really do like to see three effective modes of action out there pre-emerge. When you do that, you will get 99% control on your Palmer pigweed, and now you're set up for at least a month or two, and then you can come with something else later on. All right, thanks for that. Uh, got one here, and this is going to be an interesting discussion. This is from Randy, and he said, you talk about uh, Liberty Link beans, Enlist beans, who needs Roundup anymore? Roundup doesn't really kill any weeds anymore. All right, Randy, we're going to talk about that. And if you still need to have Roundup in some of these burndowns and programs coming up right after this, stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Are you worried about nitrogen loss this spring? Well, we asked retailers what they thought about Instinct Next-Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer from Corteva AgriScience. What they said was so inspiring, we got an actor to reenact it. <clears throat> it's a great return on investment. A great return. Investment, investment. Great return. All right, I think I'm ready to record. It's that simple. Instinct Next-Gen is a great return on investment because it protects your nitrogen. Learn more at protectnitrogen.com. When it comes to leading herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Cheetah, a high-quality glufosinate herbicide made right here in the USA. Now for use on a wide variety of crops with glufosinate-resistant traits, including Enlist crops. Its novel mode of action will manage existing or emerging herbicide resistance and provide fast, effective results. This means you can focus more on profitability and less on weeds. New Farm and Cheetah Herbicide, here to help. Downtime during spraying can lead to huge yield losses. Keep rolling with the Pentair Hypro Force Field. This pump features a unique self-regulated chamber that allows the pump to run dry while eliminating cracked seals, so you can spray longer and more reliably. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. 
Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels on variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases the seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Acre to acre, year to year, generation to generation, nobody scrutinizes performance like you do. And acre to acre, year to year, generation to generation, the consistent performance of Vasgro brand soybeans helps to keep your profitability out in front. Offering leading agronomic expertise and 100% exclusive genetics for strong yield potential. Ask your dealer how much further you can grow when Asgro leads the way. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio, right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time here in the Morton studio. And had one from Randy. He said, with, Gly- with uh, Liberty and Enlist, why do we need Roundup anymore? Roundup doesn't really kill any weeds. Brian, do we still need to have Roundup in the program for some reason? Well, look, as a farmer, you can do whatever you want to do. But I get this question all the time, and I just say, well, tell me how much you're going to spend on Roundup. Well, $2. Okay, or $3, I mean, after the rebate. Well, if that's all you're going to spend, that is not much money. And you look at what you're spending on a lot of these other products, it's significantly more. So do I like to still have it in that tank? Most of the time, yes. I'm not saying we throw it in always, but most of the time, as part of the program, it's still pretty good. Keep in mind, Roundup still kills 95% of the weed species out there, probably even 95% on your farm or more. So granted, it might not be killing the top one or two weeds, but there are other weeds out there. I'll put it to you this way. As soon as you stop using Roundup and you stop using it for, let's say, five years, there are going to be a whole bunch of weeds showing back up that Roundup will easily control. So that just will show you right there, you know what, there are still some weeds out there that the glyphosate is absolutely getting. So if it was me, well, I'll just tell you, on our farm, we still throw it in, even though do I really, really need it? Probably not, but it's just nice as a little insurance policy for not much money, and it does actually help on a lot of weeds and kill a lot of weeds still. All right, thanks for that feedback, Randy. You got this one from Ma- from Mason, and he said, considering using a, a 7- 17.3 product 
in furrow on my soybeans. Just wondering, do you feel I can run any fertilizer safely in the furrow? Yep. Uh, would this one be one I could use, or would you recommend something different? Okay, so first of all, in terms of which product, we're always going to tell you low salt when it's in furrow, and I don't care which crop it is. It's for. So use a low salt product. I'm not familiar with which product you're talking about here, whose it is, but just keep in mind, low salt. Okay, that's number one. Number two, water it down. So if you're going to use, let's say, a gallon, I might put three to five gallons of water with it or two to four gallons, whatever. Just put some water with it. That will also help safen it because you spread it out. So there's less that's actually going to end up hitting any particular seed. But yeah, in soybeans, generally speaking, we're talking half a gallon to a gallon, and that's about all we're comfortable with in furrow. And even that you got to be at least a little bit careful. We don't really want it on the seed real bad. Soybeans are just really sensitive compared to corn. And corn is sensitive compared to some of the other seeds that are out there, like wheat, for example. So be real careful with soybeans. Keep the rate real low. All right. Thanks for the question, Mason. Next one comes from Joey. He said, I'm working on getting my base saturation K above 4%. My average is now 2 to 3% on most fields with a CEC around 10. Now, I saw it on one of your shows. You were talking about potash has quite a bit of chloride in there. Yep. I'm wondering if I'm putting on high rates of potash, 200, 250 pounds each year, is my chloride level going to get too high? No. Chloride's leachable, just like, not to the degree of nitrate and sulfate, but it's still leachable. So it's not going to stick around in your soil. And 200 to 250 pounds is not a high rate at all. On our farm, we'd call that a low rate. Our crop uses way more than that just in one year for potassium. So... No, that's not a high rate. No, I would not be concerned. And chloride is a needed nutrient with a plant anyway. So having some out there, like what you're doing, to me, I think is going to be just fine. All right, thanks for the question. Got this from Gary in Minnesota. He said, want to use the three pre's this year, but Trefflan likes to be incorporated. Metribuzin can certainly be incorporated, but Authority or Valor typically like to be left on the top no, how do you no. how do you handle using all threes can they be no. all done at the same yes time? absolutely so authority and valor to say that they like to be on top that is not true the the two main reasons why the companies fmc and and valent will talk about using them on top number one is their burn down activity because they have great burn down activity or at least really good burn down activity and then number two, they just don't want you burying it. So, for example, let's say you're going out there in the spring with a disc after you put Valor on. Well, sure, you're going to end up with some Valor or authority that's going to be too deep. We just don't want it deep. Do it shallow, and it actually will work better when you lightly incorporate it than when you don't. All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, good. But we got a big pile here. Okay. Matt said, guys, humans eat livestock, meat. Meat eats grain. More ethanol means more expensive feed, which means more expensive meat, which means less meat on the table. Do you see it different? Well, the one thing that I would say is that all, okay, for ethanol, they take the corn. And there are a lot of people out there that have the misunderstanding that the corn is now completely gone and used by the ethanol. And that is absolutely not true. What the ethanol plant does is they pull the starch out. That's it. So all the vitamins and minerals and protein, everything, I mean, other than the starch, 
everything else is left and goes for livestock feed. So the livestock producers love that. And if you want to totally replace the starch you just removed, uh, you can just, every farmer's got crazy amounts of starch sitting on their soil surface with a residue from last year. They could just literally take some of that, mix it together with the dried distiller's grain that they end up with as the byproduct from ethanol, and now they're back to 100%. So to say that it's completely changing things, that's a stretch. Does it change the price some? Yes, it changes it some, but I'm simply saying to replace that is not that, that to replace that starch is not that costly. And every farmer's got that out there on his ground right now. And he could take some of that. And you see a lot of farmers doing that. They're bailing up their residue and they're replacing that. They're mixing dry distillers grain with that residue and then they're back to hundred percent. All right. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate the the comment and the question there. Okay, I got this one from LG. This is, oh, I'm sorry, Andrew. This is Andrew. And he said, I am not a farmer, but I'm listening to your show to gain more education. I have food plots for wildlife. I'm also a new homeowner. I'm looking to optimize my lawn. So I sent a sample into Midwest. Wondering what you guys think about this. I've got Kentucky bluegrass. I'm on the east end of Long Island, New York. I've got sandy soil and irrigation. Yeah, he definitely has sandy soil. His cation exchange capacity is 5.5. Uh, so, so it's going to take a lot of water through a hot summer to keep that thing green. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, especially with Kentucky bluegrass, because that's yes. one that needs its moisture and it needs cool. So hopefully there's a blend in there, which I would bet there is. Okay, but anyway, here here's what we would say. First of all, your pH is too low. You're at a 5.3, so you need a bit, a little bit of lime. That's calcium carbonate. You don't need a lot because you have light soil, but you need just a little bit. You spread that out, you're in good shape. Next thing that you're going to need on a very regular basis is nitrate and sulfate. So those are the two key nutrients in most lawns. So a lot of farmers will just use ammonium sulfate, super inexpensive. You just go spread a little bit of that out once every two to four weeks on your lawn. Again, not much, just a little bit of a time, a little bit at a time. That'll be great. Next thing, potassium. You have almost none in your soil. You need some potassium. I'll say this too, for everybody who cuts their lawn and then they take that those grass clippings off, you have a lot of potassium that just left your lawn. So if you want to have the most nutrients in your lawn, you leave the grass clippings on your lawn. If you're going to take those clippings away, then probably once a month, you need to put a little bit of potassium back out there. So those are the key things that I see uh, that you're really short on. Um, otherwise, I, I would say this. Your sodium level is at 2.6%. Okay, that's not terrible, especially for a lawn, but it is slightly concerning. So that tells me that you've got, you may, well, I, I don't know what's going on in your water, but I can say this. It looks to me, just as a complete guess, that you may be overwatering from time to time. So a lot of times with lawn care, what we talk about is you want to water it hard once a week. Now, I don't know because as light as your soil is, if that will work for you, but if you're watering every single day, I would, 
I, I might start backing off on that. I, I'm saying every other day, every third day, every fourth day, and, and then give her give it a better soak. Because what I believe is happening is you've got some evaporation of that water that's going on, and there is wicking of salts and sodium up to the soil surface and causing a little bit of an issue. It's not a bad problem today. Okay, so I'm not saying this is a disaster today, but I am saying don't overwater your lawn. All right, thanks for the question. Thanks for checking our show out too. We really appreciate that. It's good to uh, good to see people all over, uh, even including uh, in town and in New York, for example, uh, that are checking out the show and trying to do the right thing for for the environment and for whatever they're growing. In this case, a lawn. Thanks for listening to our program today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.